for me, that view of God has has evolved, has changed from the one I had when I was a really young child, where the Bible was magical and God was an old man with a white beard and um, quite cranky at me much of the time, the lightning bolt ready to come down upon me. Uh, you know, so I mean, I think helpfully my my view of God has been shaped and reshaped by the text and by the text as I get into it and ask those questions rather than by sort of the received tradition. Because I think culturally, we if we have a view of God, it is often that forensic, judgmental, lightning bolt, white dude with the beard or whatever it is. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Janine K. Brown. Janine is a brilliant New Testament scholar and theologian. She's taught at Bethel Seminary for over 20 years, which is my alma mater. She was one of my favorite professors there. Again, she's absolutely brilliant. She's written books including Scripture as Communication. She's written several great commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, including most recently in 2018, one she co-authored with Kyle Roberts part of the Two Horizons commentary on the New Testament series. She's just, again, absolutely brilliant. It's such a joy to talk to her. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. I wanted to bring Dr. Brown on. I'm still getting comfortable calling her (laughs) Janine. I wanted to bring her on to talk about strategies for how to read the Bible well. After all, as Christians, if we are going to orient our lives around this sacred text and the story that it tells, don't we want to make sure we're getting the story right? And how do we do that? Can't we all just read it whatever way we want and come to whatever conclusions that we want? I don't know if that's such a good idea. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Janine Brown. I'm joined today by Janine K. Brown. Dr. Brown is actually one of my former professors at Bethel Seminary. Uh, She was one of my favorites. Uh, One of her books made a a significant impact on me, and I want to talk to her today primarily about some of the concepts in that book and some of the work that she does as a biblical scholar. Uh, Her book that really blew me away when I was in seminary was Scripture as as Communication. And um, did I say that title right? (laughs) It is. Scripture communication, introducing biblical hermeneutics. Right. Okay. For a moment, I said too. Yeah. For a moment, I thought, is that actually it? (laughs) But that is it. Um, So, Dr. Brown, why don't you just tell? I'd love to get listeners familiar with uh, where you come from. Maybe even some of your own personal theological past. What what faith tradition you grew up in. what was your background like? And, and I'd love to hear, uh, as you just kind of introduce yourself to the listeners, if there were particular challenges you've experienced on your journey to become a biblical scholar, uh, especially as a woman in a field that sadly is still in many ways, um, being a woman in this sort of field can be frowned upon and it can be very difficult to, um, to receive acceptance in. So, could you tell people a little bit about your background, a little bit about your faith story and your uh, your academic journey? Sure. Um, I grew up in a conservative Lutheran church in the Twin City area. Um, so as I look back, uh, I realize uh, sort of the conservative part, by, by that I mean um, 
we had our view of the Bible was very much um, uh, sort of. I was certainly it was scripture for us. It was authoritative. It was true. It was it um, those kind of words, uh, adjectives that get applied to the Bible. And I would say it was also um, a bit magical. And so I'm going to talk, come back to that a little bit, uh, that that was sort of my faith tradition had a sort of a magical way of looking at the text. And that became for me sort of a point of entry to think about what does it mean to do academic study of the Bible? What propelled me on this journey? I think it comes back to a bit of that piece of it. Um, and I grew up in a very faithful family. I'm so grateful for my family of origin. You know, we went to church. We were committed to it. It was not a chore. It was something I enjoyed. Um, went to Bible camp. You know, all of that kind of uh, part of my journey was very rich. Um, and I was always a person who ha I, I would say, if um, there's this kind of spectrum that various folks talk about in spiritual formation, seeking and dwelling. Um, questing and dwelling and resting. There are two poles there. And I was a quester or a seeker. That was always my position as I look back and can identify it in relationship to faith, in relationship to the Bible. I had lots and lots and lots of questions. I loved studying the Bible. I got awards for being able to find that passage fastest when I was in fifth grade and get all sorts of medals in this thing called Jet Cadets sort of the Awana's version for whatever tradition I was in. So you were good and, at sword drills, huh? Oh, that's, yeah, that's what you called them. We called yeah. them. Oh, back, I, I, earned, I remember I earned dollar bills for getting, you know, 10 verses, finding 10 verses across the scriptures in less than a minute, you know, those kinds of moments. So I was making money off of this thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, but I was always that, but I was also always curious, wondering, I remember in seventh grade being committing myself to reading through the Bible in one year and you're just kind of deciding to move through it. And um, that is that background of, uh, so we have a, a, a background where the, the Bible is not only true and scripture and relevant for today, but almost a sense of any part of it can work in any situation. I mean, it's kind of magical um, little bits of it are like um, fortune cookies, right? You sprinkle it on top of your day, and I mean, so there. I mean, I'm probably over speaking no. or over um, overstating the case, but there was this sense where um, the Bible was the most important thing, and the most important thing I could do would be to actually defend the Bible, live the Bible, and defend it. I remember when I realized sometime in my college years that I didn't have to be an apologist. For scripture, I was so relieved because what I loved to do was study the Bible, not to defend it. I wanted to study it because my questions kept moving me in deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, at the same time, as you note, um, the woman in biblical studies, uh, my sort of my issues as a woman in biblical studies didn't start when I started moving toward seminary and then doctoral work. They started my my church of origin, where I knew really from an early age, and I, nobody told me this, but in, at an early stage, I learned that I could be one of three things as a woman in ministry. Uh, that was my quotation mark, sorry. Um, I could be a choir director, I could be a Sunday school teacher, or I could be a missionary. I remember very clearly, those are my choices in my mind. You know, again, nobody said that to me directly. Um, that's what I saw women doing. Um, and I I'm such a homebody. I am not a great adventurer. I knew missionary wasn't going to really fit who I was. I was like, I don't think I can do that. So, and 
I was a music major in college, but for some reason, choir director just didn't seem to fit the bill. I've done that once in my life, and I was terrible at it. Fourth grade choir, oh my goodness, that was awful. Um, <laughs> I think I work with adults better. And then, so the was Sunday school teacher, I remember telling my Sunday school class when I was in seventh grade that, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? We're sharing that at the beginning of the year, and I said, Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Everybody laughed at me, because oh, that's wow. not a vocation, right? And yet, that was what I loved doing. I remember teaching. I, I was a camp counselor in 10th grade for the fourth graders from our church. We went up to camp and they gave us um, a study sheet for our Bible study. We're going to do on first John. It was purple. I remember it vividly. I wrote all over the edges of it. I studied first John like you wouldn't believe I was going to strong concordance and looking at words. And I don't know what I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I loved it. I loved it. And I wrote all over it and I brought it to camp. <laughs> and these poor fourth graders, you know, 15 minutes or whatever it is. And I'm just instilling all this great knowledge into them. And, you know, 15 minutes later, they're running out the door. And I don't think it mat- mattered a whit to them what I did. But I just sat there thinking, this was so amazing. Now, that's, that's my background. And yet I had this small little container in which to do that. Sunday school teachers. I think that was it. And so when I went to seminary, came out of University Christian Fellowship in my college years, being encouraged to think about staff. I went on staff part-time, was trying to figure this thing out, went to seminary so I could pursue full-time ministry in some way. Probably staff worker is what I thought at that point on a college campus. Um, and and then was in, encountered this whole world of seminary and was encouraged to think about teaching at a seminary someday. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I had never conceived of that. And yet I had opportunities um, because Bob Stein, my mentor, was a, um, uh, was a great mentor and he taught all these various courses and he would give me sections to teach. And I did wow. a whole term, a term, you know, where they did the half Greek part of their credit with um, various students who kind of led those classes and to teach one of those. So I had a lot of opportunity to teach and I just loved it. And I thought, this is what I'm built for. Um, it, but it took a long time to figure it out because the call couldn't be clear in a context where I had three options and, and none of them was an exact fit. Although Sunday school teacher was as close as um, I think to what I do is in a sense, kind of up and up the ante and put it in a seminary. And that's what I do. Were your parents and family supportive of this or was that a, something you had to navigate through as well? Um, you know, they were, I mean, they were, they, everything, every stage I went through staff work with University Christian Fellowship, they, they loved the idea of supporting me in ministry. And they did that in all sorts of ways. My parents were wonderful. My sisters were great. Um, so that was fine. And I went to seminary and I don't think they thought that was odd. I mean, nobody in the family had ever done that. We didn't come from a family where people were pastors. It was just like, Oh, okay. Um, and they supportive on um, the, uh, Coming out of seminary, I met my husband at seminary. We got married. He was in my Greek class I was teaching, actually, uh-huh. telling that great story there. He can tell you the apocryphal version. I'll <laughs> tell you the real version, what happened. But when we came out of seminary, we actually did a church plant for a while. And so I think my dad thought women couldn't preach until he heard me preach. And then he was like, Tim and I preached together. And he's like, so darn proud he couldn't hardly stand it. You know, that's, oh, that's I mean, great. there's just this kind of sense of, for him, um, as he saw me walk through these various doors, it made sense to him. He wasn't um, probably as concerned, you know, so the theological side of him isn't as strong as the pragmatic side of, of his life and his ador- adoring 
the adoration he has for his daughters. He just loves his daughters. So oh, whatever they do, he's like, oh, well, that seems good. Um, so there wasn't a lot of family resistance. Um, but it was more of the my own stuff. I had to get over the hurdle of, can I do this? And that was a big one for me because I was a complementarian in seminary. So. Do you experience much resistance today or is that has that sort of waned? I mean, I know not at Bethel, certainly not, right? But Yeah, I mean, early days when I was teaching in the early 2000s, I remember, um, I mean, I, I suppose some people opted out of my classes simply by not taking them. You know, we had options. You could take hermeneutics with Janine or someone else. Um, but I remember feeling kind of the passive aggressive um, feeling from a few, just a few folks. Um, who just didn't hadn't had women in in the classroom before, and and didn't know quite how to navigate that authority, and and authority was an issue for them. And so I, I think I re- that's been quite a while back, though. So um, at Bethel, it's been a very supportive environment. Um, certainly, there were um, many more male faculty than female for a long time, and that's really um, begun to shift. You know, there's there's more equitable numbers and. That's encouraging to me. Um, in the guild, um, I th- you just feel it a little more sideways, I think, than direct on. Um, some people would say, oh, you get opportunities because you're a woman, because they're looking for women on projects, right? So I get the lovely um, extra task of thinking, was that was I asked because I'm good at that or because I'm a woman? You know, <laughs> I get to think about that, which is not a fun question to think about regularly. Um, and yet again, I've been, I've been very encouraged by the places I've been welcomed into. I'll still see though a book of essays or a, a, a dictionary project or something like that and look at the list of folks and go, you really couldn't have found a woman in that area. You know, that, I mean that I know people of color will ask those same questions and I try to ask those same questions about diversity more broadly than just gender. But there is a sense where we're, I feel like everyone's often feel like, wait, we're in 2019 and we haven't figured this out yet. But many mm. times I'm encouraged by what I see. Well, I do want to come back maybe towards the end of our discussion and, and to explore maybe some of the texts for listeners that would be tuning in and maybe have questions or they come from a tradition where that might not be mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that's celebrated. But first, maybe we can kind of establish some important things about how to read the Bible first. And you talked a little bit about your experience growing up, and it was almost like uh, the Bible were these magic words and magic formulas, right? Um, you've given your life to this. You've given your life to understand this really old book, and it's actually, you know, a collection of books we call the Bible. Why do that? Why give your life to this? Or, or if I were to rephrase the question in another way, because I actually think it's a question people wrestle with, even evangelical Christians wrestle with, but they're probably possibly too afraid to ask, why should this old book be of so much value in our lives today? What's the Bible actually for? Hmm. Yeah, and that's an uh, important question. Um, and I think my answer circles back to what I was saying about my context and, and that sort of... Um, almost magical way the Bible was viewed, not just as authoritative or scripture, but it, it beyond that as this kind of answer book for every question people ever had. Um, so to study the Bible um, was that sort of supreme task. And, and as I mentioned, defending it was even more important. Um, I think the answer to the question of why I've given my life to understand this really old book 
comes down to a tension I've experienced much of my life, which I've mentioned already, part of that, the quester part of me. Um, the tension I feel is between reading the Bible and experiencing a sense of comfort, encouragement, hearing from God as I read, the idea that the Bible is revelation. I've experienced that deeply in my life. And then I've had on the other side this host of questions about what I'm reading and how I'm reading and um, what about that facet of the text and how does that fit with this? And, and so, so the questions of how does it sort of make it into the 21st century from that ancient context, uh, those, those questions are always on my front burner and I think have become more so as I've become more able to talk about what um, hermeneutics is, this idea of moving between um, first context and contemporary context, my own and others. Um, so it's a tension between the reality that God has used the Bible to speak and shape me and the reality that I have always been a question asker when it comes to the test. That's always the, what's happened. I remember um, it's happened when I read the text. I just have oodles of questions. I remember in a Bible study once saying, asking a question, one of those pertinent questions, we're in the minor prophets, and I was asking this question in my Bible study leader, I think, felt a little bit overwhelmed by me sometimes. I'm going to give lots of grace to her because it's just got to be crazy to have me in a group. And and she said, well, we might just have to wait to heaven to get that answer. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I, can I, I couldn't abide that kind of, let's press into this. You know, let's think about this more deeply. And, of course, I was already formulating some possible answers, but that wasn't, you know, it was like not the place and time probably. Seminary was the place and time for that maybe more so. Um, so as much as scripture has raised questions for me, I'm always going back to that other place if it also reveals God to me. Um, and I've been working on a book project recently on the Gospels. So it's been just a pleasure to be kind of immersed in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I find their portraits of Jesus, and they're not all the same. So they're this wonderful sort of different lenses for understanding Jesus. Um, all those portraits, those four portraits to be life-giving, to be inspiring, to press me to live differently. Um, Luke and the way he shows women to be part of uh, those who follow Jesus are called disciples in Luke um, in chapter eight and other places. So it's just the sense of, um, so they're not, I should say, they're not called disciples. When he talks about the disciples, he includes them. So there's this interesting way of including women um, in the, the disciple train of Luke. So those kinds of things just really encourage me, um, propel me forward, make me want to communicate sort of the liberating force of the text um, to those that I teach and to wider audiences. So um, the Bible does that continually as well as raise all these questions that I get to just circle back and think more about and dwell upon and wonder about. Let's say people, though, can, even if they have questions about the validity of the inspiration of Scripture, let's just say for a moment people could press pause on that or those that already feel comfortable accepting at least a minimum commitment to the inspiration of Scripture. And for those people that do that and they're, they're seeking to orient their life around, around what God has revealed about himself and the world in the Bible, is there a right and wrong way to read the Bible in order to do that? If they're going to you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing this with my wife and my kids and we, 
you know, our kids go to a Christian school and they come to Sunday school and we place so much value on praying with them and telling them the biblical narrative because we think that this this thing is the way, this is the narrative that should direct their life. And I'm deriving this narrative from the Bible. So is there a good way and a bad way that I could go about uh, reading the Bible? I think there are. Um good reading practices that we can develop. Um, and I think there are some bad reading practices. And, and they, in, in one sense, they fit how we should read generally, I believe, books generally. I mean, I have, a, in a sense, a general hermeneutic. Um, I probably also have a specific hermeneutic. Those are fancy words, I realize, that, that might talk a little bit more about why this book particularly grounds my worldview. Um, but when we, for example, when we use the Bible in its smallest pieces and string them together without any kind of sense of importance of the particular place we got them, we grab a verse from Jeremiah and we grab a verse from Matthew, and a verse from Genesis and we string them. I, I think that's an unhelpful way to read the Bible. It can get us into trouble because if you did that with any other book and just pulled little snippets from a variety of places across chapters or across different authors, you would get kind of whatever you want. I mean, you, you can get whatever you want if you do that. You can, like if you would edit this podcast and just pull a line here, line there, you could do that with me. <laughs> you could just, my ad hoc <laughs> kind of statements here and there, I, I, I could be in trouble, right? So, um, but I know you're not doing that. So um, th- there's a sense where reading, and I try to press toward the whole book level, whole book meaning not the whole Bible initially, but the whole book you're in. You're in the book the book of Matthew, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. You're in Jeremiah or you're in Genesis. Stay there, read the whole. It seems kind of an obvious way to read. And yet we haven't, the, the, the church and the academy, neither have really helped us to read holistically, at least not until more recently. I think there are good moves in both places, Bible Academy, that have said, let's look at the holes more intently. Because Matthew 28 is going to adjust your reading of Matthew 10. Both of those are called mission discourses or mission moments in Matthew. And chapter 10 is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, according to Jesus, to the 12 disciples. But in 28, you have go to all peoples, right? All nations. So, I mean, you have to read the whole or you're going to have a warped view of a part um, more than that. You bring up Matthew, and I, I think of the end, actually, of of Mark's gospel and the dispute around that. But one of the things, I grew up in a charismatic and mm. Pentecostal tradition, and one of the things I frequently cite is the practice of snake handling in mm. Pentecostal churches. And it's uh, very interesting that you might see this sort of community take very, very seriously the Bible, right? I mean, they are saying we're orienting our lives around it mm-hmm. so much so that we're willing to dance with these venomous snakes in our church services because we take so seriously the scriptures. Wow. Yeah. You know, using them as just a an example, you know, if you were to sit down with somebody that comes from a snake handling tradition and they've They've grabbed that verse and they go, you know, Dr. Brown, we love the scriptures. We will give our lives to the scriptures. And, you know, Mark, the end of Mark's gospel, it says we can do this. And we're taking it so seriously. We're putting it into practice. 
You're saying that perhaps them just lifting that one particular section out of Mark's gospel, perhaps not reading Mark as a whole, could contribute to a deficient practice? I think most people as they're listening to this go, yeah, I don't think they've found the right meaning intended in that text, but they might not be able to say why it's not the right meaning Mm -hmm. other than just going, dancing with snakes feels like it's a weird thing to do. Yeah, so I think reading all of Mark, now the tricky or wonderful thing about that verse is it occurs after Mark 16, verse 8, which many believe to be the final verse of Mark's gospel that we have. Um, That's where the gospel text ends. And um, later scribes added the longer ending because 16, 8 is a rather abrupt ending. Um, So that brings in a whole different set of questions that New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars grapple with called textual criticism. So in in that particular case, a key question is, is that latter part of the text that we have that wasn't in many early manuscripts, um, is that scripture for us? Those are big questions, so I'm not going to try to right. solve let's all say, that let's, today. But yeah, yes. Let's say that but they, we just go with it being, let's keep it in the canon for now. Yeah, you know? yeah. so read the, read, reading the whole, I, I like to use the example of Philippians 4, verse 13. I memorized it as, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who gives me strength. Right. Um, I'm going to win that NBA championship, right? Yeah, the Super I'm going to do, yeah. So it becomes very, in a very individualistic context, it becomes very focused on whatever I want to do. Um, the, the, the lovely thing about that text is it comes in, first, in Philippians 4, 10 through 20, which is really about contentment. In the first part, particularly, Paul is thanking them subtly for their gift to him and saying, but I didn't need it, which is a very proper thing to do in that context in the Greco-Roman world, as you're trying to thank somebody without requiring them and obliging them to give more. You do this kind of interesting thank you dance. Um, And as he does it, he says, I've learned to be content with little or much. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it's interesting because the NIV translation even says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength as a way to point to context because this has been so um, pulled out of context. Uh, it's not that you you are going to simply misinterpret it if you pull it out of context. You could still use it well, um, potentially, um, but you'll miss this amazing truth. And I think in our context, in our Western context, this is such a powerful truth that Christ can give us strength to be content because contentment is, is this thing we're robbed of. Every time we turn on the TV or walk out our door, we want more different or something else. And, and to know that the strength of God is there for us to be content in our world is a pretty powerful one. So you kind of miss the point, even if you don't misuse the point, you could miss the point and that would be very fun. So if I were to grab that famous Philippians four text, right. And I'm going to, turn it into a t-shirt for my basketball team mm. and uh, find myself disappointed when we uh, go 0-15 on the year or something like that. And I want to go blame God. I guess what you're saying is maybe I, I, I was reading the scripture thinking that the meaning, the inspired meaning of the text were, was perhaps found in my questions that I had of the text instead of someplace else. 
And that's kind of where I want to maybe steer the discussion mm-hmm. now. I, I'm curious where... I just where, want to say you yeah. could have a footnote on the bottom of your t-shirt that says context, context, context. <laughs> yeah, and I think right. that would be helpful. But why are we trying to find the context? I think that's maybe the question yeah. that for, for people that have grown up with this uh, particular way of treating the scriptures as if it was either, you know, each verse stood alone as its uh, communication direct from God to you and all that you needed was I was sharing with uh, someone else recently about this practice we had in my charismatic tradition of reading the Bible and we would go in a Bible study we'd go around and uh, we'd just pick a, pa- a, a chapter of the Bible and we'd say hey let's just let's just keep reading until we feel something you know lift off the page and let's talk about what we mm-hmm. feel like the spirit is telling us that it yeah, that yeah. it means and uh, a lot of fun things came out of that, and it it mm-hmm. certainly did, and often oftentimes like inspired greater devotion, and even inspired people to to worship with greater passion. But I think one of the problems, though, that becomes comes out of that, right, is this: well, okay, am I actually saying that what the text means is what I want it to mean, or what it means to me? You've advocated for something you call a communication model of hermeneutic, a mm-hmm. communication model hermeneutic, which seems to place a significant emphasis on understanding the author's communicative intentions in the text of Scripture. But various traditions, like my own background, didn't mm-hmm. necessarily see that as the goal. And there might yeah. be other traditions, like more recently, like postmodern critiques might focus on meaning being found in what the reader or particular community of readers gets out of their context with little concern for what the author had in mind. Things like reading for context, right, that you've talked about, reading mm-hmm. the entire book, seem to point out that you're trying to get towards the author's intentions in their communications. But why should we care? Why should we care about the author's intentions? Why are you trying to get after that when you're reading the Bible? First, I want to say that um, it's important that we're aware of readers communities, reading communities, um, uh, and also um, the role of the spirit interpretation. All of those, those issues are really important to pay attention to as we think about this question. So I don't, I don't want to, I want to note that we all come from locations, we all have a vantage point, so that um, what I'm saying is not to imply that somehow I have an objective point of view from which to talk about right, these things. Right. I want, so I want to recognize that we all should be thinking about reader author, text, kind of how we understand those relating to one another. The model I, you mentioned, the communicative model I, I advocate for, um, really does press toward a kind of a, a way of thinking of authors as crucial, the biblical authors like Paul or um, Matthew, um, and, in, and in books where we don't have an author like Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. I mean, just even to be able to say the author of Hebrews is doing this or saying this, or leading us here, um, that that's it's an important anchoring point for interpretation. Um, there's, I do think we should care about that author, um, at least as we understand uh, that author's communicative intentions. Not something stuck in their head, like what were they thinking, but but what have they laid out for us? Because we can't and that's see what the, they're thinking other than nope, through the can't text, see behind, right? Right. The text becomes the focus of interpretation, which seems obvious. We're all opening the Bible, looking at it. Um, 
But if we focus on sort of how how we conceive the text, you said, okay, these the Bible is one book. It's also what sixty six books. It's a it's a book with many books. So if we think about that first sort of that's not the first level a scholarship would call it, but I think it's helpful for us to think about the first level, which is the book level. So the book of Ruth, four chapters, trying to figure out what's going on in that whole, thinking of that as a whole, because somebody, as that was penned, there was there was um, an intention there. And you could say, well, there's maybe there's more of a community intention, however you want to do that. I still think it's helpful to talk about the communicative intention of a whole book. It gets us a good anchoring place, is what I'd say. Um, Let's think about 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a whole letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, written in about 54 or so of the common era. Um, this, it, it, when we go to the whole book, it presses us to understand, to start thinking about how that landed, who wrote it, to whom, how it landed. When you're thinking about a verse, you don't have to think about that. When you're thinking about a paragraph, you don't have to think about that. When you're saying 28 chapters of Matthew, who, oh, who, who wrote this what, for what purpose to whom initially? Yes, it's for us. If we're believers, um, we are part of that church, ancient to modern, that has um, held the text closely and has benefited from it. And there was an original audience that really helps to illuminate um, the difference between my context and that context, and also the continuity. There's some of both of that there, I think. Um, so I think the first and grounding task of interpretation is this communicative intention, book level, historical contexts understood um, as informing the meaning of that book, what Paul was communicating to the Corinthians. We have to, in some way, get at that historical or socio-historical context was life like in Corinth? What was the church doing? Were they meeting in a large auditorium? No, they were meeting in house churches. How do we know that? We hear about it in the text itself. We can glean it from other sources as well. Archaeology has excavated some house churches. That's kind of interesting. Um, but you, you can get a sense of how that text landed by studying the whole book, historical context. I think that's getting us toward the author without saying we somehow nailed everything Paul means in First Corinthians. Right. And because we have to confess that if we're going to accept the scriptures as being inspired, that, the pro that we have to just even logically think through the process by which the scriptures come to us. And I've always, uh, I've talked about before uh, in this podcast that if we're going to start and kind of somehow trace where's the the location of inspiration, right? It, it begins in God, but God is communicating through these authors, through these agents in particular places and times. And so our job as students of the scripture, as people that want to follow Jesus, then become, well, we want to get as close to that as we possibly can, because that's where the inspiration is at. And I know from my background, people got concerned about that because it almost felt like we were treating the scriptures and reading the scriptures, oddly enough, it felt dirty because it felt like we were reading it like we would read another book or a letter or an email mm -hmm. from a friend. Um, it almost felt like there should be something more magical happening here. And I think it's, I think it's probably fair to say that we don't want to rule out the possibility of like devotional readings and the spirit mm -hmm. actually 
speaking something to us without us stepping into the world of that ancient author or audience. But if we were going to somehow instruct or encourage or really orient our lives around this story, we'd really want to get as close to that inspiration as possible, right? I think yeah, one of the so. difficult things then becomes, if I'm trying to understand, I live in Minneapolis in the year 2019, <laughs> and I want to get as close as I can to that location of inspiration, and, I, and I'm going to try to understand what an ancient author was trying to communicate. I got to confess, there's this massive difference between my world and the biblical world that the author lived in. So, what are some strategies for closing that gap or, or what you called in your book, Scriptures Communication, you called it guidelines for reading at a distance. When we've been talking about one of them already, which is reading Old Testament or New Testament books, books as wholes as much as possible, reading and studying. Um, I grew up in a tradition where um, expositional scriptures uh, preaching, expository preaching was, was sort of the cat's meow. And, um, you know, if, if you could say, yeah, my pastor has been going through Romans for a year now and we're only in chapter two, it was somehow really spiritual. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm a little more horrified when I hear that nowadays. I don't think I hear it as much, which is good, but it's like, if you can't get through 16 chapters of Romans and 16 weeks of preaching or five or 20, you can do it in any of those. And the, the you give people different things by doing it differently. Overviews are wonderful because it helps people pass to that whole book level. Um, reading whole books um, lets the text, I think, be what it's about. It presses us sometimes to recognize the strangeness of a text. I always think of 1 Corinthians is a great example. Um, now that about which I wrote, the, the topics about which I wrote chapter seven, eight, and then he does that in chapter 12 and 16. Um, and I remember as a kid thinking, I didn't write the letter to Paul. I'm talking young. I just want you to realize I was a young kid. I was seven, probably, or eight. I'm like, I, I was trying to figure out what this stuff meant. You know, the strangeness of this, for me, this was the Bible and it was magical. And yet it was talking about these really mundane things. Like Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthians. He's already let, wrote, you know, he about the letter they wrote to him about what do they say? But the letter which you wrote, it's the yes. letter they wrote to him. Um, so given the kind of the strangeness that emerges on the book level, I think it's good to sit with that a bit. What we tend to do when we hear, I think, I, I think we do when we feel the strangeness of the text is we, we sharpen our focus. We go, okay, I can, okay, that verse isn't strange. So we're going to go to the verse level or I can live with the paragraph. But as soon as I get to the wider context of the chapter, suddenly things, I don't understand them. They're not, gelling they're not coherent so i'm going to go back to the thing i'm comfortable with i just say let's just keep on going let's go to the whole book level and let the strangeness kind of impact us because then we'll have some really good questions to bring about the historical context and that's the other piece so if you're reading at book whole book levels and you feel that strangeness of the text could and then take on some of the history that might help you understand that could be history particular to that biblical author and audience. It could be about the location. It could be about practices in the ancient world, worldview questions. What do the Corinthians think about resurrection? Well, what do their what does their context think about resurrection? Not much. What's practically the mentality places... of the soul, maybe, but not much on resurrection. So how do we understand chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for example? 
What's practically some places that you could encourage people if they're just starting this journey of trying to be good students of scripture and they've done, all right, I've read the whole book and I've marked out all of these things in the book that are totally strange and foreign to me. I don't understand. I don't understand. You know, uh, this is the first thing that comes to mind and it might be a crass example. I don't understand what a eunuch is. You know, if they're they're yeah. reading the story yeah. in Acts of um, uh, of the the encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, okay. and so uh, are there particular places you would go and say, "Hey, you know, check this out if you want to understand a little bit more of the history and context." Because I must confess, probably most people that I talk to when they uh, are not in theological academia, mm-hmm. and they even if they've been going to church for a really really long time. They might go, I might look something up on YouTube first, and they might get a whole host of crazy false things that might not be true. So where are some good places that you might yeah. steer people towards in that that step of closing the gap? Yeah, and the, the history gap, yeah. cultural history gap. Um, really some helpful tools that have come up and come out in recent years that are meant to be very accessible are the um, um, background commentaries, they're called. Um, University Press has one, Zonovan has one, Craig Keener has, is coming out with multiple volumes for the whole Bible. Um, we're getting even more, sort of more depth on that. But just his, the New Testament Bible background commentary, um, I think that was IVP, Craig Keener. Uh, and then there's a couple in the Old Testament, or maybe there's one matching one in the Old Testament. The nice thing about that is if you know what a commentary is, it moves through the text verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. So you don't have to think, okay, I'm going to find out what a eunuch is. I'm going to go to a Bible dictionary, which is a great place to go, and look up eunuch. This saves you the step because you just go to Acts 8 in the Bible background commentary, New Testament background commentary, and look, and it'll tell you what a eunuch is and what kind of role they might have had in, it was an Ethiopian eunuch in Ethiopia, and what why that person would be in Jerusalem and on their way back. And so... Um, Bible background commentaries are just great sources of information and they're very accessible and they usually give you what you want and not 500 pages more, which can happen when you get a scholar asking for, you ask a scholar for resources and they give you a little too much. Um, Bible dictionaries or Bible encyclopedias are also then good resources to learn more on a particular topic, but a Bible background commentary is uh, really a good resource. Sorry, and, and I didn't mean to cut affordable. you off on that. No, that's no, uh, I just thought we'd we'd pick pick your brain on that for those. I know yeah. that's a question running through people's minds. Yeah, so you and, mentioned reading at a book level, and you know, closing the historical closing the gap. contextual gap by mm-hmm. you know making yourself more familiar with that ancient world. Any other strategies for you know this reading at a distance that we do? Yeah, um, I think, I, I, um, and maybe it gets to your asking about resources, is not to be afraid of accessing um, resources. And, and if you don't know which ones to look for, um, think about who you trust in terms of reading the text together uh, in your community. What are other people, where are they accessing some of this information? What have they found to be helpful? So reading more communally, um, I would argue we always read communally. Um, we always have sort of people in the room with us when we interpret. Um, I've made a little YouTube. I didn't do the the art sketching or the voiceover. Two of our grads did that, but it's called it's called the People Nature of Interpretation. Yes, I've watched. And it that. talks it's a little great. bit about how yeah the people in the room with you as you interpret. So um, this idea that we do this as an isolated activity is is kind of um, 
deceptive because we have influences and we can also press into doing this more in community, which I think is a good check and balance for our own thoughts. You know, sometimes I'll have an idiosyncratic thought and think, is that what that means? Could that mean that? And I go, I go ask people. I mean, whether I ask them by reading a commentary or a book that they've written, or I just simply ask them, there's a great um, value in reading more communally. So I think reading whole book, thinking, okay, I, I've got to learn to be a little bit of a historian in the first century, you know, whether it first century, if you're doing the New Testament, quite a bit further back, if you're doing Old Testament. I love what N.T. Wright says about um, this whole question. He said, there's kind of an innate something, maybe laziness, which affects all of us. Um, this kind of, do you mean, I've got to learn all this stuff about first century Judaism just to get the simple gospel message. He says, answer yes. <laughs> if God chose to become a first century Jew, yeah, might have thought finding out about first century Jews would be something a believer in God would want to do. <laughs> I, I just love that kind of sense of, yeah, no, I, I don't have to be a historian like him, he might, thankfully, but I, I probably need to press into knowing more because otherwise I'll simply reflect what I've heard or I'll have a lot of big question marks and gaps that feel very unhelpful as I think about understanding scripture. I'm so glad you brought up that N.T. Wright quote, because I know some people listening who've grown up in traditions, Christian traditions that emphasize what might be called just a plain reading of the Bible. And they, mm. you know, they might say things like, well, the Bible means what it says and whatever it says, I believe, or, you know, they might even bring up if they have a little bit, like even a basic level of biblical training, they would go, well, wasn't the New Testament written in the the common Greek vernacular of the day? You know, why do I why do I need this? You know, why do I need to study? You know, I heard had somebody leave a comment. I had done a um, a podcast on just kind of understanding some of the afterlife terminology in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and highlighting uh, how understanding some of the, the the contextual history might help us come to. Mm-hmm maybe more clear understandings of what the biblical authors had in mind when they used language like Hades or Gehenna. And somebody left a comment that said something along the lines of, well, now you're saying these other things outside of the Bible are inspired. Um, what might you say to people who who are, are wrestling with that sort of perspective yeah. or they know people that have that perspective? It's just like, hey, whatever the plain reading says, I, I just, I, I read the Bible and then I do it. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that was a context I grew up in. In fact, um, I grew up in a tradition that said we don't have a tradition. Of course, we didn't say it explicitly, but that was it. The non-tradition tradition is the one I thought I grew up in. We basically traced ourselves directly back to the Bible. We just went tunk, (laughs) 2,000 years, and then we landed there. Um, And um, I think it's first helpful to, to say that location really does matter. You know, and our traditions matter. We need to somehow figure out how to put a lens on them to say, okay, what is it I've been influenced by? Because a plain reading of scripture um, is not a contextedless reading. Every reading we ever, every interpretation we ever offer, every reading we ever think we just read has a context behind it. We might just put our 21st century context and we might say, okay, I'm reading 1 Corinthians I go to a mega church. We have a big auditorium. That's what I'm going to picture the, the Corinthian believers sitting in. We've put a context there. We'll read the text differently because of that. It's not a correct interpretation. And the fact that we know about house churches from within the New Testament maybe helps the people who say, well, I want to find only contextual information from within the text itself. 
Um, but are we going to want to dismiss relevant archaeological information that helps us to know what houses are like in the first century world? How big can they get? How big could that house church get? Some of the estimates, 35 to 50 people maybe in a typical house church. Maybe, you know, some could be a bit larger, but that was more unusual. I mean, I think that helps me get a visual Definitely. on this whole thing. Um, and that information is a context now I put behind the text, different than the context I used to put behind the text when I didn't think about it or when I thought it was just a big church gathering of maybe, for me, a couple hundred people, because that was my church growing up. Um, we're going to have a context. So it's, and that context is going to be extra biblical. We're going to, you know, a 21st century context for understanding Mark is not a biblical context. We can't bring that to bear unless we know more about that world. So it's just pragmatically for, for me, the question is, do we want to have sort of that first context or something else that maybe distorts the meaning for us a bit of what the, of what the author was originally talking about, which isn't the only thing, but which is crucial as a foundation. That's a great response, Dr. Brown. I mean, I just think uh, we get confronted with the reality that we are contextualized people. We are storied creatures living in a particular story. And not that our story might be entirely false. There might be some similarities between our experiences of daily life and that of the biblical author. But we should also be open to, and I don't know if this was in your book or another, I think one of the common analogies I found really, really helpful is, this can be a hard one for Americans, is when we go to a foreign country and we expect the people in that foreign country mm -hmm. to automatically speak English, which oftentimes is the case, maybe because they're a little bit more humble about the possibility of learning other languages, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to expect, you go someplace in the world and expect them to learn your language yeah. I, is probably an act of hubris. Yeah, and to approach the text the same way as saying, I think I've, I carry the inspiration of the scriptures within me and completely within my worldview. Um, and hopefully the scriptures themselves, even on a plain reading, quote unquote, would challenge us and make us think about perhaps our, our sinful predisposition towards to have our biases confirmed. On the other end, what would you say to those people that might be uh, on the other extreme who might think our interpretive lenses are just too colored? They might go mm -hmm. and say, all right, I've thought about this. I realize my interpretive lens is colored. But I also think, Dr. Brown, when I read your commentary on Matthew, you must be, you know, you must have a colored interpretive lens. And, I sure uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and are we locked into those? Are we locked into those? Yeah, are we locked into those? Is the, the confirmation bias just too strong of a psychological drive to overcome? What about the people that might be in that camp that just go, I don't know if we can ever get to any meaning at all? Yeah. Well, it'll help you to know that I'm a half-glass-full person. So That's good. <laughs> so That's good. A little more optimistic than that. But, it, you know, location matters, but it's not a prison. Um, that's what I come back to. Um, and... Some of the best ways to avoid confirmation bias is to get outside of our particular traditions, interact with people in a different tradition, interact with people across um, denominational lines and belief lines, so that we can hear something quite different reflected to us on a text. Oh, wait, I, 
I've never heard that. Those are good moments, actually. They're disconcerting. Um, we think sometimes that if we hear those too much, we'll just simply capitulate to whatever we're hearing. Um, I think that's where having studied, if you study the text um, yourself, never quite fully alone, but for yourself, and then interact with folks, you're in a good place to kind of think about a differentiated way of having good conversation, great dialogue, relational sort of interaction around the text. Um, just because we listen to other ideas doesn't mean we're going to simply believe those. And yet I've changed my views because I've listened to other people on a variety of topics. Um, I would think that's called life and growth and what it is to be human is we are always evolving. Um, and I love that about the academy. I love that about education. I love that about what I'm wired to do, which is to be curious and to know more and to grow and to learn. Um, and yet I hold some things very deeply in terms of convictions that I doubt a lot of other information will, will shift in some of those core beliefs. And yet I want to talk with people about core beliefs, you know, so it's, it's a place of trying to really, I think, navigate the anxiety that comes with new information and the possibility of, of having what I know challenged. Hmm. Um, and yet the, the drive to be curious and to want to grow is also strong. And I think that kind of paying attention to that balance in ourselves and saying, are we so fearful that we've just been robbed of all curiosity? Are we just so curious um, without a sort of an anchor point, kind of recognizing what, again, that's a call to kind of understand our own beliefs, think about them more deeply, wonder with scripture about them. There's kind of a balance there to strike, I think. Well, I'd love to, if you have time, um, Janine, I'd love to kind of practically walk through some examples of how we might practice this sort of communication model of reading and understanding the scripture by maybe exploring some commonly misinterpreted scripture texts. And 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 maybe you could point out uh, some that come to mind, and you could point out some steps in the processes of interpretation where you think these common mistakes took place. I know we've already talked about one with uh, the, maybe the easy target with Philippians 4. And the snake there, handling. Yeah, and the snake handling yeah. one. Those are those are a couple of big ones. Are there other ones that come to mind that you go, yeah, these are these are ones, especially maybe in evangelical settings, that might be commonly misinterpreted. And you can go, here, let me show you how, you know, along the way there this is maybe where people made a mistake. Yeah, and I I'm always cautious here because um I don't want to be the Bible answer woman. You know, I mean, there's a <laughs> right, part of right. me that just, yeah. okay, I'm, now I'm going to tell you. Um, one, one area that I think um, I found is really helpfully illuminated by uh, sort of a first century world perspective, New Testament, obviously here, um, Matthew 18, um, disciples come to Jesus and say, who is the greatest? And he brings a child in their midst. And he says, I'll tell you what he says in a minute. But anyway, um, the whole idea of what that child means. I've heard, I don't know, 20 sermons on that topic and, you know, at least 10 different interpretations of what that child should be, but often about the humility of that child or the vulnerability or the innocence or um, the curiosity. I mean, the kind of what ways we understand kids in our 21st century context. And I like to point out to folks, and I do this in my commentary, commentaries on Matthew, 
um, that the views of children in the ancient world are quite distinct from our 21st century world. So it's a good test case. Um, we are very child-centered. We see children as innocent, and adults are to be suspected more so. That's inverted in the ancient world. Children are, they lack the rational capacity they have upon adulthood, especially males upon adulthood, receiving sort of full capacity of rational thought. Um, children don't have that. Um, they're very vulnerable in that world. You know, many of them, not, I mean, more died in childbirth than today. So that vulnerability, um, they're not considered innocent. They're, 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 they're less to be trusted than adults. That's just such a different point of view. So kind of as we pull back sort of the ways we want to think about children in that passage, of course, we go back and we hear um, Jesus says, puts the child in their midst and says, unless you turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they're asking about greatness in the kingdom. Now, first of all, I want to notice he didn't answer their question. They said, who is greatest in the kingdom? And he brings a child in and says, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Didn't answer a question. Well, sometimes when people don't answer a question, it implies that the question isn't a great one to start with. <laughs> um, I think he's really pressing them to go back to the basics. Are you going to be a part of the kingdom? You need to ask that question first. And then he says, um, take on the humble position of this child. The international version, again, does a nice job, I think, of translating that this could be an internal attitude. Be humble like this child or take on the humble position. In the ancient world, children did not have a status of their own. They did, weren't high-status individuals. They could grow up into that in their family of origin. But um, they are on the low-status side of things. And I think Jesus is playing off of that. And so that lowly position is what's in view, rather than some sort of innate sense of humbleness. Having had two children um, and anticipating a grandchild soon, um, I, I never am under the presumption that these are humble beings that come into the world. They're wonderful. They're lovely. I love them. <laughs> um, and my job was to be, help them to realize they weren't the center of the universe before they graduated from high school at 18. I just wanted them to know that <laughs> people are important. You are not the center. Um, so humility uh, really doesn't work in my view of children. And I don't think it probably works in the ancient view other, uh, other than this humble position. So this, it's a really powerful text when we think about the status presumptions that get undermined in this passage. Jesus undermines what the disciples are thinking status in the kingdom will look like. And it, ha it actually moves all the way through Matthew 18 through 20. He uses um, servants and slaves as another example, another low status category, chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. So it really makes sense of the whole context. Uh, and it's one of those places where if I never hear another sermon on children um, and what they offer us, I mean, I, I, again, I love children, so I adore them. And you know, I do think there's an innocence there, but that is not what the That's text the is point. talking about. That's a great example. And I think even you highlighted how perhaps even if somebody did the first step of reading at a whole book level, they might be able to see as they move from Matthew 18 into like Matthew 20 and they see just mm -hmm. Jesus talking about servants, they might be able to see that connection. I think one of the most helpful practices you had us do, and I had you for New Testament, was we would actually go and essentially like map out, you know, an entire book. Or, you know, I think you were kind enough Actually, to not have yeah. us do, you know, an entire entire book as one assignment. But you, you were able to see before before you started going to those extra sources, those historical mm -hmm. sources, you were able to see connections at that book reading level, get rid of the chapters and the verses, mm -hmm. you know, read this, 
at, in this, you know, at a book level. And now you see these connections and that, you know, oftentimes I think people can feel afraid that once they say, I want to become a better student of the Bible, that now they're going to have to spend hundreds of dollars on commentaries. But there might be an opportunity there just to be able to see that possible connection by reading beyond that that text and into, uh, you know, from Matthew 18 and into Matthew 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a great, great possibility there where people could see that, but even they could do it and possibly miss it. And that's why it's important to do both of those steps. That's a great example. Are there, are there any others that come to mind of, uh, you know, commonly misunderstood or possibly misinterpreted scriptures? Well, I'll raise another one from Matthew. And here I'm, I am very much holding open possibilities. Um, but it, uh, it's a passage that we read, whatever we're going to do, we're going to read quite a bit of background into it. So it's one of those great places to illuminate how we don't come without a background. We just, we read something in, and that's Matthew 27, 46, where Jesus on the cross right before he dies says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening there? I know the answer I received when I was a kid. I know what I think now. You can read my commentary if you want to think, I know what I think now. Um, but the point is, it's a very evocative moment. Matthew doesn't say, number one, he's citing Psalm 22.1, citing. He's crying, praying, Psalm 22.1. Psalm he'd probably grown up with all the Psalter, knowing, learning, seeing people in lament, cry out to God. This was, I don't think he's just saying, I think I'm going to cite Psalm 22.1. I mean, Jesus <laughs> crying here. out, crying out as his people have had it cried out for hundreds of years, this line and maybe more of it, uh, you know. Um, but what does that mean? What does that mean in the relationship between Jesus, God, and people, and humanity? Is God turning God's back the Father on turning Jesus? his face away. He can't look on sin. And I'll say, how do we know what that God can't? I mean, we, I always get nervous when people say God can't. Right. Okay, do we have a view of of the divine power prerogative, I mean, really works with that language a whole lot. You can say it once, but if you say it a lot, I get a little nervous. Um, but, but the point is we don't know, is this, is this a cry of self-experience? Is this subjective? Is this objective, what God is doing or not doing? Matthew doesn't tell us. We try to take clues from Matthew as best we can. Um, so I'll just leave it open there to say, so yeah, I mean, is God turning God's back on Jesus or is Jesus experiencing the silence of God right before he dies? The, I am the, what he has experienced in Gethsemane. This is the plan. We go ahead with it. And there's no changing of that plan. And it moves all the way to his death. And then, of course, in Matthew, wonderful and amazing things sort of happen at his death, which is fascinating to look at as well. So I think God, Jesus' death does something in Matthew. That's clear. But what's happening in that moment? Um, and I'll send people to my commentary if they want oh, to hear more of my that's, perspective. That's, that's too that much terrible? of a teaser. That's too much of yeah. a teaser. Can you give yeah. us a little more? Because now well, I'm really intrigued by it. Yes. Because, and I will pick up the commentary too, but maybe, <laughs> maybe this could be an extended trailer. <laughs> oh, extended trailer. Yeah, no. Um, uh, I just, I'd, I'm not convinced we have the right to read the objective view that God does turn self away from Jesus. Like there's some um, sort of ontological thing right. happening. Right. I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
um, uh, presume to say that didn't happen definitively. It's just, does Matthew communicate that? I don't think so. I think that's theological um, reading. We all do theological reading, but that's, it's, it's feeling like it's imported there in a very, again, evocative text that doesn't give us interpretation. I mean, it gives us very little interpretation. It's kind of lean, tight. Um, and I could see very, very well arguing from Matthew that, um, you know, from clues and hints in Matthew, that this is Jesus experiencing right before his death, God absence, God's absence. Like I experience God's absence, but of course more intensely, I don't mean to presume, but how, how we all experience the absence of God when God is not absent in our theology, but in our experience. Um, I just think it's an interesting place to ruminate and wonder. Um, and does yeah, I saw our atonement theology comes out here. What does the atonement require? Um, what does God's work on behalf of humanity require from God, from us, from Jesus? Whole set of interesting questions there. So, uh, but I am, again, I pull back from saying God is required to do something or right. not. That that's something that I've learned to be more cautious about. Yeah, at least, especially just on the basis of this text to build a mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. atonement right. theology. You say, well, I go to Paul and I go, yeah, I'd love to have a conversation in Paul and Romans about this with you. Another place I'd love to go because, you know, I've also gone there and thought through those issues as well. Um, I think in Jesus, God definitively acts to address sin and death and the whole human problem. So don't get me wrong. Yeah. Atonement happens. And it's what precisely happens there that I find really interesting and how easily we tend to overread if we want to put it that way or just read a lot and part of it is this just it's a little bit of a gap in the text there right yeah it's also probably a a fault of people that enjoy systematic theology as maybe i as i do to start hyperlinking you know Mm, that text to paul and now it's fitting into our systematic theology nice and neatly Speaking of hyperlinking, I, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, because, but I, I'm curious, while I have you on, I'm curious about that, uh, his reference of Psalm 22 there, because Matthew is a very, if we could use modern terminology, it's a very hyperlinked book. These mm-hmm. texts, constantly, uh, constant referrals to, to the Old Testament scriptures. Here's Jesus doing it, as Matthew tells this. And have you heard anybody perhaps give the defense that um, Psalm 22 is, as he's crying out on the cross, that maybe Matthew's intentions are to get get people to read or remember the entirety of that psalm, which includes, you know, and he has not abandoned his holy one. Vindication at the yeah, end. Yeah, the right? vindication. Right. Yeah, and nicely, Matthew points us to Psalm 22 about five, six, seven times in the preceding context. Matthew. 22 overlays or undergirds, um, I'm sorry, Psalm 22 un- undergirds Matthew 27 in this section, in the crucifixion particularly. So I do think there's an invitation there to look at the wider part. I wouldn't want to simply say, well, it's all fine because he's going to be vindicated. I don't think that's what Jesus is experiencing. No, don't worry, guys. Don't yeah, worry. You know, I, 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 the, um, it's interesting in the commentary because I wrote it with Kyle Roberts, who's a thematic and constructive theologian. Um, he does a little more hyperlinking, but not, I mean, not 
not to not to Paul, but he does. Um, we do have a different perspective on that text a bit, and some people might read and go, "I'm not sure I fully understand how to how to think those are." But um, we do the I Janine I Kyle kind of moments in that discussion in the latter part of the commentary. So we can, you can hear kind of how we work that out a bit differently, even though I think we're both prone to um, look at evocative nature of Matthew there, kind of do its work, you know, not, not answer definitively for us. Um, so, I, so yeah, I mean, we, we will always read theologically and it might be interesting to read kind of Kyle's perspective and mine, he has a little more of a Waltmanian yes, read yeah. there. The crucified God. Takes, yes. Mm-hmm. Which I'm very, I mean, I'm drawn to Richard Bacham actually brings that work to biblical studies nicely in his work and I'm drawn toward, but I don't think I go with the full Waltmanian. No. I don't know. This is getting too much. So no, I no, no. It's, no, it's great. It's great because I always like to get a little bit off the deep end with people so that they they can, those that really like uh, unpacking this sort of stuff can right. can do it. And people don't, they can turn up the speed on the podcast. Or, exactly. you know, I think one of the interesting things, I, I, don't wanna, I do want to get to the last question here, but I, I'm just so intrigued by this section because it, it does create such, uh, even in worship, Right, the the lyrics that we sing. There's been a bit of controversy around um, using, for example, like in in Christ alone or in that more contemporary hymn. Um, what was it? Maybe it's Stuart Townsend. There's the actual. There's the line. You know, the Father turns his face away based mm-hmm. based on this text. And you bring up Maltman, and I think it's interesting. I wonder too if we're trying to read it. We're reading it in that first century context too. I often think pastorally, trying to read the scriptures pastorally, being someone in an ancient community, what might the people in my church community really be wrestling with? And I, you have mm-hmm. to you have to imagine that someone living in the first century, dealing with persecution, rejection, mm-hmm. you know, the community that Matthew Matthew's original reading community is is taking this text and they're probably feeling pretty forsaken at times mm-hmm. in their own moment. And maybe the the meaning there, though we might have disagreements with certain ontological descriptions of what's happening, you could sit down with a guy like Kyle or Moltmann and go, well, we agree that you know, sort of the pastoral encouragement is you might feel God forsaken as well, but there is hope. You know, Christ himself has experienced the same experience as you. And so, I don't know, maybe there's ways you can find pastoral. Yeah. Yeah. Does, is there any way to harness some of that? I mean, to say, yes, this talks about atonement. I think it does. But it also has some pastoral significance. Um in the Gospels book I've been working on, that I've turned it in now for publication, so next summer maybe. Um, it's called the Gospels as Stories. Um, reading the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I forget to get the subtitle quite right. And when I was, you, I talked about narrative theology in a chapter. Then I, I look at Math or Mark's Gospel on this topic of of God, who who is God in Mark's Gospel, <clears throat> not Jesus in the story, but um, God the Father, as it were, um, in chapter one and chapter, and then later on, and then. The voice of the voice of God comes twice at key moments and doesn't come precisely at this moment in Mark 15. Um, and what does that do for us? Does it do something? Does it invite us to something, a way of understanding God that is less um, 
nailed down, you know, the um, God acting, but there's, there's this silence, uh, you know, sort of uh, Terry, um, Samuel Terrian has a book, an Old Testament theology book called The Elusive God. That title sticks with me a lot. When my, in my life, I feel God is elusive. Um, and, and are we seeing some of that in Mark's gospel too? So that's kind of the question of that chapter. And um, it was really interesting to work through that with a, a couple of different scholarly voices who have talked about who is God and Mark. And that's, um, so, that, that gets really to the, the difficulty, right, of the process of not just interpreting the scripture, but as you talked about, the full process of understanding the meaning of a scripture is mm-hmm. how it actually now integrates. Once we've stepped into that ancient world, we have tried to get as close as we can to the location of inspiration, and we feel like we've grabbed the meaning. The meaning isn't totally complete, right, until we have a an outlet for it as to now how does this integrate? I know it can be maybe oversimplified to call it what's the application point, but how does this actually integrate into our lives and, and reorient us towards a particular way of being in the world, that, that can be where a lot of the, the complexity comes in. Yeah. I mean, Because you can read Mark and say, I'm, I don't have the theology of Mark. I'm not committed to the theology of Mark. You, know, you can read Mark as a, a, a non-Christian, as somebody who doesn't, is not committed to the faith, or, um, or it was a Christian who wonders about Mark's perspective, or, you know, all small alternatives connect or um, locations and to say I want to hear what Mark says and take that view of God and 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 reflect upon it through reflect theologically on what does that offer to me to understand to understand or not fully understand God. Um, you know I think it's one of the gifts of Mark according to a variety of scholars. We don't get a neat little tidy bow on a box. There's something quite profound about what God does in Christ and and the portrait of God ends rather abruptly without the divine word at the end, but with the divine action. And Jesus is raised. So the definitive act has happened. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about what does that offer? What is, um, what does a picture of God who is acting in this world and yet doesn't always speak so we hear, or doesn't always speak. What does that mean? I mean, is that what Mark is doing? Is the first question. I mean, it's a very you know, you could read my chapter and go, I don't know that, but that's what is if that's what Mark is doing. But if some of that works in your mind, then what what does that mean for us? Is a crucial question. If Scripture is Scripture, if the Bible is Scripture, that's it, right? That's the difference between treating the Bible as for those that might feel like. Boy, what makes this book unique? And they maybe have questions about approaching it and and trying to read it in a way that seems similar to reading other pieces of literature. The real difference that separates it, right, is whether it becomes scripture if we actually are looking to follow Jesus Mm in the world. And I think Van Hooser brings up uh, one of the articles um, I know we had read in, in seminary. I don't know if it was for your class or not, but he had talked about, he referenced this lesser, less known story from C.S. Lewis about stepping into a, a, a woodshed and Lewis, there was a beam of light that was coming in. He looked at the light from the side and he looked around it. But when he stepped into that light and looked into the light, this new world 
Hmm. emerged before his eyes. And that scripture doesn't become, the Bible doesn't become scripture until we're willing to step into that Hmm. light. And Well, finally, um, Janine, if you don't mind, I'd love to, for those people, you know, I promised this at the beginning of our discussion, there may be some people who listen to this podcast that that come from some complementarian streams that, that don't allow women to be in pastoral ministry or even have concerns about, you know, they might go, well, I'm definitely against that. And I maybe even have questions about like a female Bible professor, women mm-hmm. teaching men about the Bible. And, and they come to this conclusion as, as people who care deeply about living consistently what the Bible teaches. We go to church. I go to church with people like, like this. Um, what, what case would you make from the scriptures to contend that restricting women from pastoral ministry or from teaching the scriptures isn't something the biblical authors would support? Well, you're right. This would take much longer than we have to dive into. Um, and I do want to affirm your words that um, people who care deeply about living out what the Bible teaches come to different conclusions on this map. Both sides find their anchor in scripture. Um, I spent my seminary years as a complementarian. I think I mentioned that. Um, and I heard various egalitarian readings of key texts, and key texts in my mind were 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 1 Timothy 2. Um, but I wasn't immediately convinced by them. And what I realized pulling back further after seminary, my, even, my egalitarian convictions have grown out of sort of more of a macro level understanding or realization. Um, I remember being, I remember hearing the argument that we have to let the didactic texts inform the narrative texts. Didactic texts, teaching texts like 1 Corinthians 11, 14, 1 Timothy 2. Um, Galatians 3 wasn't always brought in as relevant. Um, so I think that's a powerful text. What I realized as I was starting to pursue and think about doctoral work and thinking about narrative more, which is where I've spent a lot of my time thinking about narrative texts, was when I realized the realization for me that narrative texts are didactic texts. The narratives are telling us stuff. They just don't tell us the same way as letters. Of course, they're different genres. But when I realized it's all didactic, why would you say scripture is anything but? It's more than didactic, but it's less than didactic. Um, so narrative texts, and, and I really wanted to stretch into how does narrative communicate? And that's been my journey a lot. And I think I've, in my mind, um, that's been a, a big part of what I offer is to help people understand that these narrative texts, like Luke 8, Luke 8, where women are with Jesus, just these these group, this group of women, as the, as the disciples are, with Jesus is the language that describes both of them. How does that help us? Does that mean something for us? Is it just descriptive or is it really, because it's Jesus, is it telling us something about how we ought to be? Romans 16, which is in a letter, but it's a listing of greetings, and yet a third of them are women, probably women leaders in that church. Does that make a difference? Um, and in the practices of Acts, because their narrative, does it mean they don't matter? I think actually the author guides us to approve and, and potentially disapprove various things along the way. And I don't think that the women involved in the ministry are the moments where we go, oh, disapproval. It's not just innocuous, it's, it's actually affir- affirmational making up words as I go. Um, <laughs> so good theologians do. So, and it's also what my reading method of whole books, historical context has um, brought me back to first Timothy. And I've done some work in that area, teaching on it recently with a group of people from Bethel teaching at a church on the pastorals. And I've been struck again, <laughs> that if we read whole books 
and not just pick out parts um, and read them in that historical context, that's just crucial. The false teaching that's rampant in the in Ephesian churches, as Paul writes to Timothy to address those issues, has got to be part of what we're hearing when we move to First Timothy two. It helps us to explain First Timothy four and five as well, which people aren't as I mean, just texts that that otherwise are these kind of odd texts that we don't know what to do with. But if we hear it as a whole, it begins to make a lot of sense. Gordon Fee has been a big influence in my understanding of First Timothy holistically like that. So there's a little bit of something. That's a good note. So I feel passionate about that perspective, but I certainly can understand why folks don't right. take that perspective away. And my goal teaching at a seminary where we have both perspectives are presented on faculty and in our student body is to just bring the best of scholarship that I can and to represent views well and to not demonize any particular perspective. Um, and not apologize for my own perspective. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, Jeannie, I thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to put links in this uh, the description of this podcast to at least the two books that we've talked about. Your Matthew commentary is out now, right? Correct? It is. The it Matthew is. Okay. and the Two Horizons version was last year sometime. And I'll also put a link to Scripture as Communication. Are there any other projects you're working on now that you want to maybe make people aware of that could be... Um, whether they are books or I know you, you mentioned uh, you had at least one YouTube video out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, well, the Gospels of Stories is something that won't be published till next summer, but I'm just really enjoyed working on that. I am working on a revision of Scripture's communication for a second edition. Um, and last year as well, I co-authored a book on relational integration between psychology and Christian theology with Steve Sandage, who taught in our marriage and family therapy program in St. Paul, and then is now at Boston University. So we have a book. Oh, that's great. Um, that's on the, it has a little bit of the history of that engagement, and it has a relational model for understanding integration interdisciplinarily as embodied, hermeneutical, developmental, and intercultural. That's great. I, that does remind me, you did write, you co-authored, wasn't it Becoming Whole and Holy? Was that the mm-hmm. other book? Um, so that's an, and, and even yeah. for people that aren't academics, I think that one's pretty accessible. That's too. very accessible. Very the accessible. one with Steve is a little more, um, a little more academically oriented. Um, yeah. Some of our theology students even go, "Oh, it's been in my head a little bit." <laughs> um, but psychology students really have enjoyed it. Mar- a marital, marriage and family therapy oh, students. That's great. Their language. I'll include a link to that one as well, and uh, I'll make sure you know people are able to. Uh, if maybe they're interested, um, I don't know if I don't know if you have a forum for people to reach out to you with questions, or if you have a m- mode in which people can engage, whether it's on social media or a blog or anything like that. I have so. a website with a little bit of a blog that yeah. it, it okay. doesn't get attended to a lot, but I mean, if somebody sends me uh, a note, I'm happy to answer. Great, great. Thank you so much, Janine. Um, best of lo- best of luck on the start of a new semester, and I, I sincerely you. appreciate the time you've given me. It's good to be here. Thanks, Paul. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that conversation, and I hope it fuels in you a desire to become a better reader of the scriptures. I want to thank the Patreon community, the Deep Talks Patreon community, for making this episode possible. In particular, I want to thank Paul, Elizabeth, and Sam some of our more recent 
Theology 201 level contributors. Thank you guys for your support. It is sincerely appreciated. Uh, You're helping make episodes like this possible. If you want to get involved in supporting this podcast, you can become a member at Patreon. Just you'll find the link in the description of this podcast. And there are, you know, different ways that you can support this. If you're not ready to make that sort of commitment, I don't blame you. That's okay. Maybe you're just listening for the first time. Uh, Maybe you could start by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode or an episode you like with a friend. I don't do advertising or anything like that. Hopefully the way that people connect with this and are learning and growing from it is through just relational connection, through trusted advice from a friend that says, hey, take a listen to this episode. I think you might get something out of it. So I'm still thankful to get to do this. I can't do it without your support. And I appreciate those of you, not just on the Patreon community, but those of you that have reached out and have shared it on social media. I love it. Thank you guys. It means the world to me. But I also want to encourage you to reach out with questions, comments, observations, and even disagreements you might have so that we can have a conversation together. And that's, I think, really where the the growth happens. So you can find me on Twitter. I'll leave a link to my uh, Twitter feed, not my Twitter feed, my Twitter handle in the description or the description of this podcast below. Thanks again, guys, for listening. And until next time.